This podcast was recorded at Hartford Street Zen Center, Isanji, in San Francisco. Please help support our temple by making a donation at hscc.org. not to try and wrangle with an okay so <clears throat> um, I'd like to say uh, a few words about the precepts today and, uh, I usually don't <coughs> think very much about the precepts and uh, it's probably because I think I do a fair job of keeping them. And that's probably a mistake to think that. Because it's always easier to see someone else's mistakes rather than your own. But I have to tell you a little story about how I came to be thinking of them. Um, it started uh, maybe earlier this year. I was watching PBS and there was a um, 70th birthday uh, celebration of, uh, for Joni Mitchell. And uh, Graham Nash, who's from Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, other groups and so on back in that era, uh, had lived with Joni in Oral Canyon for a couple of years. and. <clears throat> While they were there, he wrote a song for her, which probably very few of you will recall. And I'm not going to sing it because my voice is terrible, but basically it goes, our house is a very, very, very fine house with two cats in the yard. Life used to be so hard. Now everything is easy because of you. And when I heard that song, I broke into tears. And I thought, well, what the hell is that about? <clears throat> and I realized it was because I still want that. I want the cat. I want the husband. I want the picket fence. I want the happily ever after. And uh, it came as a bit of a surprise to me because I thought I'd actually let go of all of that. Not that I was uh, actively trying to be celibate but I just gave up. Um, anyways, that sank back down into the unconscious, at least partially. And a few months ago, I guess you'd say it came up again because I started to think, you know, I, I really do want that. And whether I can get it or not, maybe I should try because uh, as some of you may recall from my Shusa lecture, or perhaps I've mentioned it one or two other times as well, the reason I came to practice was essentially because of a uh, ill-fated love affair. And that's why I gave up on all of that business. <clears throat> so anyways, here it comes again. How interesting, after all these years. 
had that same old thing come up again, and it never really disappeared at all. So I started thinking, how am I going to go about this? And you're running a risk to do that. That's how it feels to me. And I became very risk-averse. But I realized that in being risk-averse, you do a pretty good job, maybe, of um, not being hurt because you don't take the risk, but neither do you have any joy. And I wanted a little joy. <clears throat> so I didn't know quite how to go about this because I was definitely out of the loop as far as dating and all that sort of thing is concerned. So I thought, I'll try online dating. <laughs> That's the modern way, right? <laughs> oh, woe to you who enter the realm of online dating because it's quite bizarre. Um, and it didn't take me very long to see that um, there's a lot of potential there for um, harm being done to oneself and to others, either consciously or unconsciously. So I was thinking about this yearning of mine, and I thought, well, <coughs> Buddha says that uh, thirst or craving is uh, the cause of suffering. I thought, well, gee, do I really want to go and seek out more suffering? <laughs> Not really. Um, but I felt it so strongly that I decided I, that I really needed to do it, just to see what would happen. Unless you all think this is just the tale of some horny old monk, but it's not what it's all about. It, it was a genuine desire to connect <coughs> with people in many different ways, actually. I, I'd love to have a travel companion, uh, intelligent conversation over coffee, you know, basically, I don't want to take anything I can get. I just I, I wanted human contact because I was feeling a little bit mm, kind of isolated or sequestered here in the realm of Zen. <clears throat> so what are you going to do if life is suffering? caused by craving, and here you are craving. We can't get out of the world of suffering. It's part and parcel of our lives. So I thought, well, if I'm going to consciously enter into that, even though I'm actually already in it, <clears throat> if I'm going to consciously enter into that, how am I going to go about that? And that's when the precepts sort of popped up. I thought, well, it seems like the precepts are guidelines <coughs> for us to use when to maneuver our way through the realm of suffering. They teach us how to treat others and to treat ourselves as Buddha. 
obviously, when you talk about romance and sex and all that stuff, the, the first precept that pops up is the um, third grave or prohibitory precept of not to misuse sexuality. It also includes, in the broadest possible sense, the first pure precept of to do no harm. I think actually I read somewhere says do no evil, but evil is a kind of a loaded term, particularly here in the West. So I think do no harm is a good um, way to think about that. And that covers all the precepts, not just the non sexuality or. <clears throat> So this business of doing harm, it can very easily happen in this uh, in the realm of uh, dating and romance and so on. <clears throat> and um, a lot of that, I think, is due to projection. And uh, when I use the word projection, I don't mean it in the sense that the Lankavatara Sutra talks about it, where everything is projection. I mean, more of a, in the psychological sense, uh, like uh, Carl Jung talked about, of, uh, each of us obviously has an unconscious, and there are things in that unconscious that, because they're unconscious, we're not aware of them. And he, he calls uh, some of that stuff archetypal figures, such as the mother, the father, the golden child, the shadow, um, uh, so on and so forth. And um, we all have that within us, and if we're not aware of it, the less, you, the less you are aware of it, the more there is a tendency to project that onto other people and other situations. And so uh, sometimes it's in the case of, uh, like if you want to use the shadow as an example, you, you have some dark side of yourself that you can't face because you've built up this very nice little thing of like, this is who I am, this is the way I act, this is the way I speak, I don't do those things. And you, but you're totally unconscious of that, and so you project that onto other people, those other people, they're the ones, they're the problem, there's what calling, causing all this mess. It's not me, I'm good, I'm sweet, I'm nice. So, that's hard to um, bring that up, though, that unconscious material, um, unless you want to strap a therapist to your back and throw a rope down the deep well of the unconscious and go spelunking. I can't afford that, so I'm just on my own. <laughs> Anyways, I did see in myself um, the kind of projecting of semi-unconscious semi material onto other people. And I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing, because sometimes you may meet a person or a, 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 like a couple, and they're like the perfect couple, I mean in every way. And it's not just this veneer of, oh, aren't they sweet, they look cute together. It's like they genuinely have like what some people call a soul connection. And it may be because each one is projecting 
something onto the other one, but the other one is such a perfect screen for that projection that it's a match. I don't think that happens too often. But at any rate, I was seeing that in myself, and I thought, well, okay, there, there could be trouble there. I better watch out for that. And also, I got the feeling that um, even though I was just texting and so on, that I was getting some projection onto myself as well. I don't need to go into personal details. It's really too personal. But I could see that, or I could think I saw that, and I thought, well, if I'm not a good screen for that projection, then, you know, there's another possibility of trouble down, on down the line. So in the case of all of this, I, it seems like all you can do is to try and be as conscious as you possibly can. And of course, <clears throat> ideally, we want to be conscious all the time, 24-7. It's impossible. So you do the best you can. Be conscious and be honest so that when circumstances do arise where things are getting a little iffy, um, uh, you can say, you know, this is how I really feel and I'm sorry if your feelings are being hurt. I'm sorry if it's unfolding in a way which you don't care for. That's, that's really about all you can do. So that's kind of one little personal example of, I guess you could call it precept practice here in the modern world. And another one, this involves another little story, um, came up uh, not too terribly long ago. I was having um, brunch with a dear friend of mine. And I can't remember what we were talking about, but it was something like, gee, I, couldn't, I can't figure out why I act in such a way in response to such and such, or you know, something along those lines. And he said, David, it's because you're a bitch, dear. <laughs> and, and I've known this friend for so long, and we're both rather curmudgeonly. So we can get away with that kind of talk with one another. You know, it's really, there's no, it's not mean-spirited at all. It's just, first off, you're speaking the truth, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or the truth as you see it. And uh, so we just kind of laughed it off, you know. And then more recently, uh, there was a circumstance where um, I said something to someone and Almost as soon as the words were out of my mouth, I said to myself, you bitch. And it wasn't so much, I don't think, the, the content of the words as the delivery. Um, anyways, partially based on the response that I got from the person, I thought, that, that, that didn't come out right. <laughs> and so <clears throat> I made my apologies. Um, and. Uh, I was feeling okay about that. I thought, you know, that's, the apology was accepted and so on. Um, uh, and uh, in addition to the apology, though, was kind of a, a, an acknowledgement of, yes, David, you are a bitch. <laughs> and so I had to start thinking about that because I 
I guess I don't really think of myself in those terms. I guess I think I'm basically, eh, you know, I'm an okay guy. Well, there's a part of me that's a bitch. And I started thinking about what does that actually mean? Because that's, that's a word that's tossed around an awful lot in everyday conversation. Uh, people use it all the time. And uh, I'm not sure if a lot of people know what it actually means. So as you all know, I'm sure a, a female dog is called a bitch. And um, that most likely where the term came from and if you observe, um, if anybody's ever had a dog that has puppies, if you start messing with those puppies, treating them in some way that mama doesn't like, mama's gonna snap. She's gonna be aggressive. And I thought, well, that, that surely is the, the genesis of the word bitch as regards to people, because it is kind of a snappish, aggressive, kind of a behavior and sometimes it comes out in a humorous way and sometimes not so humorous. Um, anyways, I was feeling, you know, okay that I'd gotten my apology and a, a little slightly taken aback that I it was acknowledged <laughs> that I was a bitch and so I guess if I was Catholic, I'd have to go to confession now and say, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. I have sin committed the sin of pride. Pride in the fact that I thought I'd done good and everything's okay. <laughs> but, um, you know, when, when, the, um, when, the, when the dog snaps at you, it's, it's a protective mechanism. She's protecting her puppies. And I thought, maybe, maybe in humans it's the same thing. Maybe, maybe that snappiness, or that aggressive behavior is actually a, a um, uh, protective mechanism because there's some part of uh, you, me, that is, um, needs to be protected somehow. That you, you, there's a, you feel a vulnerability or something like that. And, um, you know, I'm sure you all know that uh, the Buddha did, never said a disciple of the Buddha is not a bitch. <laughs> it, it's just not there. And so you have to dig a little deeper and you have to think about what, what are the different aspects of that kind of behavior, or that kind of speech. And um, there's uh, that, that first pure precept comes up again do no harm. Um, but then if you go just a little bit deeper, you can, that's one thing wonderful about the precepts is you can, you can work with them, well, pretty much forever. Um, they're, they're, they seem very straightforward when you read them on a piece of paper, but they're actually, in regards to human life, they're more nuanced than that. So if you start looking at, say, for instance, um, the seventh grave or prohibitory precept, do not praise self at the expense of others. Well, kind of bitchy behavior, to me anyways, it's a little bit of setting yourself just a little bit higher than somebody else so that you can look down on them and go, you know, complain about something they're doing because it's always easier to see someone else's faults than it is to see your own.
So that's possibly one precept that might be broken with this kind of behavior. And then, of course, the ninth preparatory precept is harboring ill will. Well, I'm probably harboring a lot of ill will, not to anyone in particular, but basically at the world at large, because life is fucking unfair, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm just going to go around and <clears throat> be a bitch. <laughs> not consciously, though, that's it's so interesting that these behaviors, sometimes we're aware of them and sometimes we're not. And it, Self-reflection is a good thing. I'll just say that much. It's good to look at this stuff. So once you've acknowledged, once I've acknowledged a certain behavior that you feel like might be uh, breaking a precept, what do you do? Well, the first is acknowledgement. You have to see it before you can do anything about it. And the next step would be to repent that behavior. And then the final step would be to renew your vow not to continue with that kind of behavior. All my ancient twisted karma, I now fully avow from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion born through body, speech, and mind. We don't say that so much around here anymore. It uh, might be a good thing if we did, but that's neither here nor there. Um, I wanted to um, read a line from Anjou. This was a great little book, Cultivating the Empty Field, The Silent Illumination of Zen Master Hongzhou. And this is, Hongzhou is keeping company with Carl Jung on my bedside table, so kind of strange bedfellows, but uh, pretty interesting to sort of flip back and forth between the two. Hongzhou said something that struck me. He says, essentially, you exist inside emptiness and have the capacity to respond outwardly without being annoyed, like spring blossoming, like a mirror reflecting forms. And I thought, oh, how nice to respond outwardly without being annoyed. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'll try that out for size and see what happens. Um, <clears throat> so, I've been talking about the precepts I would say like, like we generally think of them, which is uh, you have this list of my behaviors, and then you have this list of the precepts, and you do this, okay, what's matching up and what's not. And that's looking at the precepts um, um, in a conventional way, but we can also look at precepts. It's uh, in uh, the ultimate truth of precepts. Uh, it's a little bit different. Uh, it's it's actually 
kind of harder to look at because after all ultimate truth is I mean, how can you say anything about ultimate truth I mean no words can describe that Nagarjuna says without a foundation in the conventional truth the significance of the ultimate cannot be taught without the significance of the ultimate liberation is not achieved so how do you approach the ultimate truth of the precepts um, as I said it's pretty hard to use words when you're doing that but fortunately we have such masters as Hongzhu, Dongshan, Shirto, and Dogen who all to my mind have a, a way of speaking that um, they're not talking about ultimate truth as separate from conventional truth. They talk about ultimate and conventional interpenetrating one another. Absolute and phenomenal interpenetrating one another. Buddha and sentient being interpenetrating one another. So that's what's wonderful about those particular ancestors. And what's sometimes frustrating too, because we tend to, our, our default mode is the conventional mode. We want to grasp onto something, we want to figure it out, and then that box is checked. Okay, we're all good. But when you leave that realm and start floating around in the, uh, in the ether or something, um, Well, anyway, I'll leave that floating. <laughs> I want to give uh, one more quote from Hongzhu. I've had this book for quite a while, and I don't know if I ever even really looked at it, but just. A month or two ago, I pulled it off my bookshelf, and it's really quite amazing. It's uh, it's it's sort of like Zen mind, beginner's mind. You could literally open it on any page, and find something to think about. Um, but this one uh, paragraph really struck me quite a bit. Each little paragraph has a title. This one's called "Simply Drop Off Everything." Silently dwell in the self, in true suchness abandon conditioning, open-minded and bright without defilement, simply penetrate and drop off everything. Today is not your first arrival here, since the ancient home before the empty kalpa, clearly nothing has been obscured. Although you are inherently spirited and splendid, still you must go ahead and enact it. When doing so, immediately display every atom without hiding a speck of dirt. Dry and cool in deep repose, profoundly understand.
if your rest is not satisfying and you yearn to go beyond birth and death, there can be no such place. Just burst through and you will discern without thought dust, pure without reasons for anxiety. Stepping back with open hands, giving up everything, is thoroughly comprehending life and death. Immediately you can sparkle and respond to the world, merge together with all things. Everywhere is just right. Accordingly, we are told that from ancient to modern times, all dharmas are not concealed, always apparent and exposed. <clears throat> So, Hongzhou is obviously talking about and the same thing Dogen's talking about when he says, body and mind of self and other drop away. And of course, it's not us that does the dropping away. We don't cause the dropping away. The dropping away is happening all the time and it goes on continuously body and mind of self and others, dogs and cats, mountains and rivers, even the precepts drop away. But still, we must enact it. There's some difficulty in enacting that sometimes. And once again, we can kind of come around to the conventional way of looking at the precepts and use the precepts when we find some difficulty in <clears throat> enacting the dropping off of body and mind of self and others. I find a lot of um, Buddhist words, text, scriptures, and so on seem like they're almost kind of circular, like you're, you're studying one thing and you think, oh, well, that sort of sounds like, and then you read that, it's like, oh, that sort of sounds like, it's like, you read the Four Noble Truths and you think, oh, well, that sounds like something else or the Eightfold Path. Um, with the Eightfold Path, right view, if you could just hold right view all the time, everything would take care of itself. Right view is just simply seeing things as they truly are. Not as they appear to be, not as you want them to be, not as somebody else wants them to be, just as they are. And then of course intention, the next <coughs> of the Eightfold Path is carrying that forward, right intention. So I think you can see maybe a little bit of how all these different ways of thinking and studying and so on are all kind of interconnected with one another. And I would say I wish I was more of a studier so that I could have this sort of information at hand for you and weave a lovely tapestry, but I really don't like studying very much. 
certain 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 Hongzhi, Dogen, certain things pop out at me from time to time, but in general, I'd rather be watching Game of Thrones. <laughs> um, anyways, I think I've um, perhaps chopped the Dharma into hash long enough, and um, I'm going to leave you with one short final quote. This is from Candy Darling. And she said, be yourself. It is the highest form of morality. It's interesting. I just saw that last night. I was watching a documentary on Candy Darling, and I was surprised at that. I thought, that girl must have been a Buddhist or something. <laughs> That's pretty spot on. And it, it, interestingly enough, it tied in with what I've been thinking in, in my preparations for this talk and so on. Any questions, comments? Speak quick or I'll make you eat cookies. So, yes. <clears throat> uh, there is a Buddhist way to express bitchiness. Is it not? Uh, I don't know about that. I think you'd have to study that for a while. Because bitchiness is, it appears, you know, on the surface when you're doing it or somebody else is doing it. There's a sharpness to it, right? I mean, that's how I see it. And it's like when I mentioned that I, I got my own bitchiness confirmed, it, I could feel the sharpness of that comment. Whether it was intended that way or not is almost beside the point. That was the feeling that I got. So I, I don't know if you can or I don't know how that works <laughs> exactly. It's uh, kind of another thing in a, in a similar vein. It's like um, when I was talking about the like the online dating and so on and so forth. Um, there are some people that do that, and they're interested in sex only, right? There's a little book around that some of you may have seen or perhaps even read called The Ethical Slut. <laughs> Is it possible to be an ethical slut? Is it possible to be a bitchy Buddhist? Well, I don't know. I think in both of those instances, I would I would have to study that for a while before, and maybe even not then, give a definitive answer. You know, I, I think in either case, it's uh, it's uh, a cause for a long reflection. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, I think. Thank you for that answer. I think, it, I, you know, as Buddhists, um, there are ethical sluts and bitchy Buddhists. So the reality is that they're there. So is it possible? Yeah, because there's some in this room right now. Walking you down you the need street. to speak just a little bit louder. <laughs> yeah. So I think that the reality is there are ethical sluts and bitchy Buddhists. So, so it's like, is it possible? Yeah, because we're here. We're existing. Um, and I, and I think 
I really agree with um, so much of what you said today, and, and um, just that concept that it's worth deep reflection and determining what we want to do about it, if anything. And uh, I think you know when Gil Fransdale teaches the precepts, and he talks about um, you know right view is where we decide that we're going to walk this path and do these eight um, eight steps um, uh, because it's for the benefit of self and others and both. And I think that's such a good reminder that whatever experience we've had, um, being a little bit bitchy or being deeply wise, um, being wonderfully compassionate, you know, whatever, whatever those experiences are, that part of as we walk the path and, and the Buddhist path is sharing that very experience. You know, not cleaning it up and making it pretty, but um, um, doing exactly what you did today, making it very real and very powerful and as an opportunity for the rest of us to, to either move towards that with you or to say, mm, that was interesting and I'm gonna go slightly different, but having learned from what you said one way or the other. So I think the, uh, the bringing in the precepts to those two stories you told was um, remarkably helpful for me. Thank you. Yeah, you know, a lot of our behavior is habitual. And as far as I've seen in the gay world, bitchiness is habitual. <laughs> it is, it's, it's, it's a way people start doing that kind of speech and behavior and, and get locked in somehow to it. And let's face it, sometimes it's really funny. Like a drag queen with a great bitchy sense of humor, it, they're really fun to watch, you know? But somewhere in there is that little jab, you know, that, certainly that potential for hurt. So it's like you say, I think to, to uh, it's like you make a vow that as I move forward in this life, I will try to avow the ancient twisted karma, whether it was in previous lives or whether it was like two weeks ago, you know, or my childhood or wherever it came from. Wherever, wherever the, the, the foundation was laid for this kind of behavior or thought, you know, to acknowledge it as much as it's humanly possible and take the next step. You know. It's really all we can do. Yes? Thanks, David. Thank you for sharing your thoughts with us today. Um, I appreciated the what to me sounded like the start of your journey with this being the song with the home and the cats. And how, if I understand you correctly, when you looked at that box, you said that this desire that you had was suffering or thirst. And to me, what you did really represented sort of that more ultimate practice of the precepts, where you said, I'm not going to hold on to this fixed idea about what this is, and I'm going to look at that. And I want to say thank you, because um, I appreciated your talk too and that you were willing to not just throw something in a box based on what you know, your life experience was and look into it more deeply. 
And I think I've struggled with this, and I think here a lot. We get this idea that tershna, thirst, desire is necessarily always a bad thing. And I think there definitely is wholesome desire, and that's to be celebrated and embraced. And I think you had such a great, and are still having such a great journey based on that. And I want to say thank you. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, we're, <clears throat> we're already in the realm of desire. That's where we live. Right? So what are you going to do? I mean, you could, you, you could do like I thought I was doing years ago, and sort of pack that up really neatly, put it in a box, hide it under the bed. <coughs> uh, and everything will be good. Not the case. So I think it's better to, like you just said, look at it, examine it. What am I going to do with it? If I'm going to do something at all, what's it going to be? How's it going to work? How do I comport myself in this realm? You know? And if and could, there's always going to be the possibility of uh, harm, and sometimes it comes unbidden, and sometimes uh, we cause it without any kind of conscious uh, thought at all. I mean, somebody that consciously does harm—that's pretty easy to, um, you know, uh, criticize. Um, but since we, we all have the capability of either causing or receiving harm that is not consciously um, um, put out there, then um, it, it's, it's all the more reason to be kind of careful, you know, respectful, honest, straightforward, upright. You know, that, that's keeping the precepts, doing all those things, I think. <coughs> sometimes, and like I said before, sometimes we, you do have to enumerate them or pick a certain one and think, oh, this is really speaking directly to X, Y, Z behavior. But sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's, it's not as direct as that. And you're a little more subtle and you have to kind of sink into it a bit. Thank you. <coughs>